of what we've been doing so far. We wanted to find a lecture where we can put everything into perspective in terms of the autonomics because you would have been doing it in pieces in the different areas that you've seen so far in the head and neck. So really we wanted to put everything together in a summary in terms of the anatomy of autonomics of the head and neck. Now in the neuroscience you're going to go into a lot more about the neurological aspects and the central aspects. Here we're more concerned with the peripheral aspects in terms of peripheral nerves and how the autonomic system works that way. So again, we are, always have our copyright. If you want to get more information on what we're going to talk today about, these are the three major nerves we're going to be discussing in terms of autonomics, oculomoto, facial, and glossopharyngeal. And I've listed the pages where you have information about the nerves, but also information about the autonomics from um, in your Gray's Anatomy textbook. All right, so we're going to start with a clicker question. Okay, so that's an interesting spread. So as we go along, we're going to see the question again. So we have, all right, so the high points, we have parasympathetics, pre, postganglionic parasympathetics, and postganglionic sympathetics as our major choices. So as we go along, we're going to see what the correct answer would be, and we'll hopefully, when we see the question again, be able to answer it a little bit better after we've discussed it. So we're starting off with sympathetics. Sympathetics to the head and neck is really simple. Now in the past in the body, you've seen sympathetics being very complicated when it comes to the GI, when it comes to the pelvis, when it comes to the body wall. But for the head and neck, it's actually the simpler system and the more complex one would be your parasympathetic. So sympathetics, these slides are just talking a little bit about your um, review. So we know where sympathetics come from, T1 to L2 in terms of your pre ganglionic sympathetics from your lateral horn, we know that they must enter the white rim micronicon, go into the sympathetic chain, and you can either ascend or descend the chain once that happens. Now, if you're going to the head and neck, you're basically originating from about T1 to T2 for your sympathetics. They're going to go into the sympathetic chain via your white rim micronicons, and they're going to ascend the chain into your cervical ganglia. So remember, they're entering at T1 to T2. They're going to ascend the chain to your cervical ganglia. You have three of those, superior, middle, and inferior cervical ganglia. They're going to synapse at your cervical ganglia, and then they're going to leave the cervical ganglia as post-ganglionic sympathetic fibers. All right, so the preganglionics would be T1 to T2, as I said. Postganglionics will be, the cell bodies would be in the cervical ganglia. And the 
postganglionic fibers will do something very similar to what we've seen before. Right? We've seen sympathetic postganglionics take the blood vessels as their vehicle to get to their target destination. So the same thing happens here in the head and neck where you form carotid periarterial plexuses. So you have your common carotid artery, then you have your internal, your external carotids. So those are the, and their branches, so those are going to be the arteries that are going to help bring your post-ganglionic, sorry, sympathetics to their target destination. So all of the branches of the carotids, you would see that they have these periarterial plexuses around them. And again, you won't see the plexuses in lab because we tend to dissect them out, so you can see the vessels quite easily. But around these vessels, you will have postganglionic sympathetic fibers trying to get to their target organs. Now, we do have some discrete sympathetic nerves. We have the deep petrosal nerve and the long ciliary nerve. So those are discrete nerves, and we're going to talk about where you're going to see them. But in general, you're going to have these postganglionic parasympathetics going through your vessels or on your vessels, rather, to your target organs. What are some of the target organs of sympathetics in the head and neck? Why do we need sympathetics in the head and neck? Right, blood vessels, right? So all of the blood vessels are going to need sympathetics for vasoconstriction. Where else do we need sympathetics in the head and neck? Sweat. The eyes, someone said. What does sympathetic do in the eyes? Right, causes dilation. What else does it do in the eye? There are two targets for sympathetics in the eye. Circular muscles, not circular muscles, not ciliary muscles, but in the eye, in the eyelid, we have a muscle there called the superior tarsal muscle. And so your sympathetics would be going to that muscle. We'll talk about that in an upcoming slide. In addition, you have sweat glands in the skin. We know we all sweat on the face, erectopelian muscles. So those are going to be the targets of sympathetics. And you also have sympathetics that goes to your salivary glands. You're not going to talk a lot about them, but keep in mind you do have sympathetics going to the salivary glands. And here, as opposed to working against parasympathetics, they actually work with parasympathetics for your secretions. So they are actually going to contribute to your secretion from your salivary glands. Right, so here we have an image from your atlas that basically talks about what we just spoke about. So here you have that superior cervical ganglion. So here, this is where you're going to have those post-ganglionic sympathetic cell bodies. And from there, you can see this is going to be your common carotid going into your internal carotid here. And we can see these fibers spreading on the carotid arteries, and that's going to have your um, post-ganglionic sympathetic fibers. From the common carotid, or from the carotid arteries, you can see a discrete nerve here. This is your deep petrosal. That's one of the discrete sympathetic nerves. We're going to talk a lot about what it does in um, an upcoming slide. But you can see here the deep petrosal nerve is going to join with another nerve, forming the nerve of the pterygoid canal or the vidian nerve. So again, we're going to see that in an upcoming slide. Now, because you have sympathetics going to such a wide distribution in the face, it's very hard for you to go, let's say, if I cut the deep petrosal nerve, I won't lose sympathetics to that to the face or that part of the face because I have lots of vessels that are going there bringing sympathetics. So the really the only way to lose sympathetics completely on any side of the face is to cut it off at the ganglia or below the ganglia. So you cut it off either at the spinal cord at T1 to T2 or you cut it at the ganglia because then you're cutting the sympathetics to that, com to that side completely. So if I were to just go in and cut one of the vessels or cut my deep petrosal nerve, I would not lose sympathetics to the face completely. The only way to do that would be to actually cut at the spinal cord or to cut at the ganglia where you have all of the sympathetics going there and all of the cell bodies at that area. All right, so this is 
how you will have your sympathetics coming in. So here we have our internal carotid artery with our periarterial plexus going through. And then your sympathetic fibers, generally they would go on to this nerve here, which is your long ciliary nerve. And this is going to the eye specifically. And from the long ciliary nerve, your target organs would be your dilator pupillae muscle here and your tarsal muscle. Now, when you think about the eye, you have two muscles in the eyelid that are responsible for keeping that, for opening and keeping the eye open. You have your levator pupillae muscle or your levator muscle, which is going to open the eye. What nerve innervates the levator muscle? Three, oculomotor, right? It's a, mus it's a skeletal muscle. Now, skeletal muscle eventually will get tired. So you have your superior tarsal muscle, which is a smooth muscle, innervated by sympathetics, and it's responsible for keeping your eye open. So when your levator opens the eye, your smooth muscle is then going to be contracting continuously to keep your eye open. So if I lose my smooth muscle, the superior tarsal muscle, will I be able to open the eye? Yes, because your levator muscle is working. But over time, as the levator muscle tires, right, and the smooth muscle is no longer there, what happens? You get where you have drooping of the eyelid, and that's because you've lost your smooth muscle that helps to keep the eye open. That's called partial ptosis, where it's going to droop over time. Okay, so going back to the question, let's see if you guys, after we discuss the sympathetics, if we have any different answers after this one. So it's the same question. So our patient has ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. So ptosis we just discussed was sorry, drooping of the eyelid. Meiosis, what's meiosis? Anyone knows the definition of meiosis? Pupillary constriction. So that means that the pupils are unable to dilate. And anhydrosis means the patient is unable to sweat. So we know from these three symptoms that we're looking at a sympathetic problem because we just talked about the targets of your sympathetics in the head and neck. So based on that, we can definitely eliminate choice A and choice C and choice E. So we're left with either preganglionic sympathetics or postganglionic sympathetics. The question further goes on to say that we're looking at a tumor, the apex of the lung, which is invaded into the neck structures. So what structure in the neck do you have that's sympathetic in the neck? Does anyone the ganglia, right? This, the chain ganglia would be in the neck. So your cervical ganglia would be in that region. So what kind of cell bodies do we have in our cervical ganglia? Postganglionic sympathetic cell bodies. So the correct answer for this would be D, postganglionic sympathetic cell bodies. Right? This is a very, um, this is called a pancoast tumor, where you have a tumor at the apex of the lung that can invade into your um, neck structures and invade into your carotid sheet, invade into the areas around your carotid sheet, which is where you have your sympathetic chain.
Now, preganglionics would not be more, would not be as correct because that's coming from T1 to T2, spinal cord, and that's not going to be in any way related to our tumor. Okay? So that would be the correct answer for this question. Okay. So this is basically what our patient has presented with, Horner's syndrome, where you have loss of your sympathetics. And which is the affected side in this patient, the right side or the left side? The right side. So we can see here you have drooping of the eyelid. As compared to the left, the right pupil is constricted, and if we were to touch the face, the face would be dry because the patient would not be able to sweat on that side. All right? So this would be our sympathetics, and that's basically all you need to know about sympathetics in the head and neck. So that brings us to parasympathetics, the more... My, in my opinion, more interesting area of the head and neck. So first thing to, re to, un to think about is what are our parasympathetic cranial nerves? So we have four of them. Okay. When it comes to the neck, we have the vagus, and we're going to talk a little bit about the vagus in terms of what it does with in, in the neck region. But primarily in the head, we have your oculomotor, facial, and glossopharyngeal, three, seven, and nine. Now, these are considered to be parasympathetic cranial nerves because they contain preganglionic parasympathetic fibers that come from a parasympathetic ganglia within the brainstem. So these are parasympathetic nerves because they do contain these preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. Now, we have another nerve that is very closely associated with parasympathetics, but it's not considered to be a parasympathetic nerve. That's your trigeminal nerve. And that's because, for the most part, the trigeminal nerve does not contain preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. It's used as a vehicle in order for our postganglionic parasympathetic fibers to get to their target destinations. So whereas our sympathetics were taking the blood supply, okay, with the um, carotid, the arterial plexuses, your parasympathetics, they hop onto the nerves of the trigeminal, the branches of the trigeminal nerve. Why would they do that? Why do you think they use the trigeminal nerve? It is the most ubiquitous nerve in the face. It goes everywhere. It goes to every part of the face. Remember, you have your ophthalmic, maxillary, your mandibular divisions. So it goes really and truly goes everywhere in the head and neck. And so it makes sense for those fibers to jump onto something that's going to go where they're going to go. They're kind of lazy like our sympathetic fibers are. All right, so the vagus, I'm going to talk briefly about the vagus because it does only really do the neck region. And in terms of the neck, we're talking about things like our pharynx or larynx. And it contains preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. So just as we saw with the vagus in the, um, in the GI system, you're going to have preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. Additionally, just as we saw in the GI system, where do you find your postganglionic cell bodies? Within the organ itself, right? So very similarly here, within the wall of your pharynx and larynx, you will actually find your postganglionic parasympathetic fibers that are going to be synapsing with your preganglionics from your vagus. And the vagus is going to supply the mucosa, so all of the mucosa of the larynx, the pharynx, those are going to be supplied by the vagus nerve in terms of your parasympathetics. All right, so what do we have as our targets for parasympathetics in the head and neck? Mucous membranes, right? So these mucous membranes are your mucosal membranes. You have nasal cavity, oral cavity, 
paranasal sinuses, pharynx and larynx, those are all covered by mucous membranes. And those all contain glands within them. And so those glands within these mucous membranes are supplied by your parasympathetic fibers. The, in the eye, you have your sphincter pupillae muscle. So parasympathetics, because it's a constrictor, um, parasympathetics for the eye is going to be responsible for constriction. Sometimes you say PC, parasympathetics constrict. Additionally, in the eye, you have your ciliary muscle, and ciliary muscle is responsible for accommodation, the ability for you to focus on different objects, right? And so that's also going to be determined or controlled by parasympathetics. Lacrimation, the ability for you to produce tears, that's also a parasympathetic effect. And of course, in terms of salivary glands, most of the volume of the saliva is under the control of parasympathetics. So those are going to be your target organs. So as we go through, we're going to talk about how we get to each of these target organs and where, which of the nerves their parasympathetics would be coming from. So let's talk a little bit about the brainstem. This is something you guys have done already in terms of where your parasympathetics are and how they're related. So you have oculomotor here. We can see comes out the base of the midbrain. You have your facial at that angle between the pons and the medulla. And of course, your glossopharyngeal, you have that here as well, and your vagus nerve. So this is their associations. I'm not going to spend too much time on here because you've seen this already. But this slide is important because it tells you about the brainstem nuclei associated with your parasympathetics. So within the brainstem, you have your Edinger West one. You, you guys are responsible for knowing the names of this nuclei and knowing that they are parasympathetics because we do have, you can have injuries to the nuclei themselves that can lead to parasympathetic deficits. So your Edinger-Westphal nucleus would be associated with cranial nerve 3, okay, and the brainstem associated with cranial nerve 3. With cranial nerve 7, it's the biggest of the parasympathetic output. You have your superior salivatory nucleus associated with it. For cranial nerve 9, you have your inferior salivatory nucleus. And for the vagus, which I said is going to the neck, you have your dorsal nucleus of the, or dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus. So again, you are responsible for knowing the nuclei and which of the nerves they're associated with. Now, as I said before, cranial nerve 5 is not considered to be parasympathetics because primarily it does not carry preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. It carries postganglionic parasympathetic fibers because that is how they're going to get to their target organs. There is an exception to that, and we will talk about that exception with the lingual nerve where with the lingual nerve, there are some places where you would find preganglionics with the lingual nerve and some places where you would find postganglionics with the lingual nerve. So as always, there is always that one exception. So the lingual nerve would be the exception to this rule that we just talked about. So this is going to be the basis of all the parasympathetics. The preganglionics would be found on your 3, 7, and 9. So these are your parasympathetic nerves. As I said, because they do contain these preganglionic fibers, your post they're going to synapse at a ganglion, and these ganglion are going to be associated with cranial nerve number five. So they're going to hang on cranial nerve number five. Why would they do that? Because the post-ganglionic fibers are going to be taking cranial nerve number five to get to their destination. So you have a ganglion, usually associated with a branch of cranial nerve number five, and your post-ganglionic fibers are going to then take these branches of cranial nerve number five to get to their target organs within the head. So here we have our ganglia. So this is where you would find your post-ganglionic parasympathetic cell bodies. So with cranial nerve number one, or V1, sorry, we have your ophthalmic nerve. 
it's going to be associated with this ganglia here, which is your ciliary ganglia. So it makes sense. Ophthalmic nerve that's in the V1 distribution, it's going to go where? It's going to go to the eye. Okay? So it's going to bring parasympathetics to the eye. You have your maxillary nerve here, and it's associated with this ganglia, which is your pterygopalatine ganglia. And that's going to bring you to places within the distribution of the maxillary nerve. And finally, with cranial nerve V3, which is your mandibular nerve, you have two ganglia associated with it. You have your otic ganglia, which is going to bring you to your parotid gland. And you have your submandibular ganglia, which makes sense that it will bring you to your submandibular glands and your sublingual glands in the area of the oral cavity. So this is just another slide showing you the same ganglia and their associations with cranial nerve number five. I have a question mark here. What is this ganglia here? That's the great trigeminal ganglia. So it's the largest ganglia that we have in the head. So that brings us to our next clicker question. All right, so our patient, ooh, I like this distribution. Our patient has headache, medriasis, and blurry vision. So medriasis means dilated pupil, just as meiosis means constricted pupil, and blurry vision. So let's go on, and then we'll talk about it as we get to the next go at the question. So we're actually looking at cranial nerve number three, your oculomotor nerve, going to the eye. So let's, um, what I've done is I've actually laid out a flow chart in terms of how all of these fibers are going to get to their target organs. So again, we always start for cranial nerve number three in terms of parasympathetics at the edinger westphal nucleus. It's going to go through the middle cranial fossa. It's going to pass through the, infer the inferior vision, sorry, division of cranial nerve number three and synapse at the ciliary ganglion. Very important. From there, your postganglionic fibers would then enter the short ciliary nerve, and they're going to take, and that's going to take your fibers to your sphincter pupillary muscle for pupillary constriction and your ciliary muscle for accommodation. So this is how you would get in term, get there from your in terms of another picture. I usually like to put these in. So here we have our endoglossal nucleus hopping on to cranial nerve number three, as we can see here onto that inferior division, getting to the ciliary ganglion, synapsing, and then our target organs would be our pupillary strict, oh sorry, sphincter pupillary muscle or pupillary constrictor muscle as well as our ciliary muscles. So, let's see. Another go at the question. Let's see if you guys are a little bit 
All right, so 61% of the class was correct. The answer would be the short ciliary nerve. So let's go through and figure out why it's the short ciliary nerve and why it's not the oculomotor nerve, because I just said the oculomotor nerve is responsible for parasympathetics, right? So a patient has, as we said, headache, medriasis, and blurry vision. Let's talk a little bit about blurry vision. Which of the parasympathetic effects are we affecting when we say the patient has blurry vision? Are we talking about when we talk about accommodation, right? So if you've been to the optometrist, they put the um, atropine in your eye, which inhibits your parasympathetics, what happens? Do you get double vision? Do you see two of everyone when you're walking around? No? What happens? Your vision gets blurry. You can't focus. So I want us to be very clear on blurry vision, which is a parasympathetic problem, versus double vision, which is what? Double vision would be a motor problem. In order for you to actually see one object, your muscles of the eye need to move together. All right? So this, these are the only symptoms our patient has, has because we're told that the H test is normal. So you guys talked a little bit about the H test with Dr. Haig's lecture. It's basically testing for movements of the eye muscles. So the oculomotor nerve, in addition to being parasympathetics, we also know that the oculomotor nerve innervates some of the muscles that move the eye. So if the H test is normal, that means that the question, um, the oculomotor nerve cannot be the correct answer. Because in addition to our parasympathetic problems, we will also have movement problems in terms of the eye. So the patient will also present with double vision as well as blurry vision. So because of that, the correct answer would be your short ciliary nerve. Okay, so there we're only really affecting the parasympathetics. Now, the short ciliary nerve is a branch of V1, so it's also going to have sensory fibers there. But I didn't mention that in the question because we're focusing on the parasympathetics for today's lecture. All right, so next question. Alright, so our patient has dry eyes, dry nasal passages, and dry paranasal passages, and we're trying to figure out where the problem is. So we have ciliary ganglion versus superior salivary nucleus. We have, alright, so let's see how we go with the question. Alright, so our patient, Basically, we're looking now at cranial nerve number seven in terms of parasympathetics. And you notice here that I've placed greater petrosal nerve there. So I want us to immediately associate greater petrosal nerve, parasympathetics, cranial nerve number seven. Now, cranial nerve number seven has two, par two parasympathetic roots, and we're going to go through both roots 
in the lecture today. So we're starting at the superior salivatory nucleus. We're going to enter into, in through our internal acoustic natus, and that's going to be the nervous intermedius that contains your parasympathetic parts of cranial nerve number seven. The greater petrosal then is going to exit at the geniculate ganglion. You guys would have talked a little bit about the geniculate ganglion. That's going to be the bend, right, where you have your cell bodies. What kind of cell bodies do we have the geniculate ganglion? Sensory cell bodies, right? So those special taste fibers are going to be, their cell bodies would be at the geniculate ganglion. So the greater petrosal is going to enter there and basically exit at that point. And it's carrying your preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. It's then going to join with the deep petrosal nerve. What kind of nerve is a deep petrosal nerve? It's a sympathetic nerve. And that is, get, they're going to go through the pterygoid canal and become the nerve of the pterygoid canal. It's also called the vidian nerve. So those are two synonymous terms. And it's entering into the pterygopalatine fossa, where you're going to have synapse at the pterygopalatine ganglion. So which nerve is the pterygopalatine ganglion associated with? V2, right? So it's associated with the V2 nerve or your maxillary nerve. So you're going to see your PT ganglion in the lab hanging from your V2, from your, from your um, maxillary nerve. From there, you're going to have branches are going to go into the distribution of V2. So we're thinking our paranasal sinuses, our nasal cavity in terms of our mucosa. The palate is also done by the um, by V2. So that's going to be getting its mucosal lining glands there. It's going to be getting it from V2. Now let's think about production of tears. Where are your tear ducts um, located? All the way here, right? So is that the V2 distribution? Nope, that is the V1 distribution. So that means that in order for you to get to V1, there must be something that goes on in order for these fibers to get from your V2 distribution, which is where they're going to enter, to your V1 distribution. So here we're starting at the superior salivatory nucleus. Um, we're going through. Here we have our geniculate ganglion. We're exiting. So we're still preganglionic parasympathetics as our greater petrosal nerve. Here we can see our deep petrosal nerve, and they're both joining here to form the nerve of the vidian, the nerve of the pterygoid canal or the vidian nerve. Here we can see our V2 nerve. This is maxillary and our PT ganglion hanging from the maxillary. So that's where you're going to have your synapse in terms of your parasympathetics. And from there, your parasympathetics would then branch onto branches of V2 to get to your nasal cavity, to get to your paranasal sinuses, to get to your palate. So again, it's the same image that we're seeing here in terms of how we get to our paranasal um, cavity and these areas. But I want us to use this slide to focus on how we get to this gland, which is our lacrimal gland. So once we're entering into the PT ganglion, we're synapsing, we need to get from this V2 distribution to V1 in order for us to have produced or to give parasympathetics to our lacrimal gland. So we're going to have the nerves hop onto a branch of V2, which is your zygomatic nerve. Everyone remembers the zygomatic nerve. Right, so the zygomatic nerve, from there you have a communicating branch, and that communicating branch is going to communicate with the lacrimal nerve. And we know that lacrimal nerve is a branch of V1. Remember NFL, nasociliary, frontal, and lacrimal. So from once it hops onto the lacrimal nerve, the lacrimal nerve is then going to take those parasympathetics to your lacrimal gland. So there is a communication 
in order for us to have our parasympathetics go from the PT ganglion here within the V2 distribution all the way to your lacrimal glands. So this is another image that shows us the same thing where we can see our preganglionics coming through, synapsing at the PT ganglion or the pterygopalatine ganglion, again getting into your nasal cavity, but in order for us to get to the lacrimal gland, we're going to hop onto the zygomatic nerve, communicating branch onto the lacrimal nerve and into our lacrimal gland. All right? So it's a very similar image. I've just given you different images to show you exactly the distribution of your parasympathetics from your greater petrosal nerve and from your PT ganglion. So these nerves here, these are your lateral nasal nerves, which are branches of your V2. Here we have some of your um, anterior nasal nerves, which are branches of V1 in terms of the question marks. All right, so going back to this, there is a little bit of an error in the question, and I want to see if anyone will pick it up. But let's see how we go first, and then I'll tell you what is wrong about the question. <laughs> Alright, so our patient has dry eyes, dry nasal, and paranasal passages. So we're thinking about the superior salivatory nucleus because that's going to be your origin of your preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. So has anyone figured out what's wrong about the question? Anyone? Well, it's not bilateral, yes, but can have dry eyes on that one side or both sides could be bilateral but it says that there are no other symptoms if I were to damage the superior salivatory nucleus what else would I be damaging not only the big the greater petrosal root of my seven but what is the other root of seven chordae tympani root so what additional symptoms would this patient have taste on the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and what else does chordae tympani do? Salivation to your sublingual and submandibular glands. So in addition to dry eyes, dry nasal passages, and dry paranasal passages, the patient would have problems with taste on the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, as well as dry mouth. Now, the symptom of dry mouth, I'll, well, let's see how this goes. I think I have another. There we go. Kind of gave away the question here, but... That means everyone should get this one correct, 100% on that one.
Okay. All right, so let's move on to our chordite timpani. So again, the origin for your facial nerve in terms of parasympathetics would be your superior salivatory nucleus. And of course, it's going to go through the posterior cranial fossa to enter at the internal acoustic natus. Now let's talk a little bit about the internal acoustic natus. What else do we have enters um, or exits the skull at the internal acoustic natus? So the facial nerve, all of the facial nerves, that would include the parasympathetics, which we have here, but also it includes the motor parts of the facial nerve as well, and the sensory parts of the facial nerve. So everything of facial nerve goes through your internal acoustic natus. What else goes through internal acoustic natus? Vestibular cochlear. So if I were to damage the internal acoustic natus, right, and I were to damage the contents of that area, I will be damaging not only my facial nerve and its distribution, which would be motor, parasympathetics, and sensory, but I can also damage my vestibular cochlear nerve. So a an injury at the internal acoustic natus would give you a lot, large, a lot more symptoms than just individual parts of the facial nerve. All right, so then we have our chordae tympani is going to be carrying these parasympathetics. It arises in the middle air just before it exits at the stylomastoid foramen. So what parts of the facial nerve exits at the stylomastoid foramen? Parasympathetic. So once I've been through the stylomastoid foramen as the facial nerve, where am I going? I'm going on to the face to form what? Everybody remember my two zebras with my clavicle, the five terminal branches. And these are going to what? The muscles of facial expression. So if I cut the facial nerve after it exits from the stylomastoid foramen, I've already, it's already given off its parasympathetics and its sensory. So the only thing that's left would be the motor. So cutting out the stylomastoid foramen would give me motor symptoms, a motor problem. So I'll have difficulty with moving the muscles of the face. So the facial nerve is one of my favorite nerves when it comes to head and neck because based on where you cut it, it has so much things that it does. Based on where you cut it, you can get different problems or different, um, different symptoms. And I think in Dr. Haig's lecture, he went through different areas where you can cut the facial nerve and some of the symptoms that you can actually get from that. So the chordae tympani is going to enter into the infratemporal fossa. And at that point, it's still preganglionic. It's then going to join with the lingual nerve. So here's the exception that we spoke about earlier. Here you have the lingual nerve, which is a branch of which nerve? It's a branch of V3, the mandibular nerve. So again, remember we talked about the fact that trigeminal is not considered to be um, parasympathetics because you don't have preganglionic fibers on it. So this is the exception. The lingual nerve is going to take these preganglionic chordite tympani fibers all the way down to the submandibular ganglion where you're going to have a synapse. And then the ones that are going to the submandibular gland goes directly there because it's very close to the submandibular ganglion. But to get to the sublingual gland, it hops back onto the lingual nerve. So now you have postganglionic parasympathetic fibers on the lingual nerve, and that's going to take your fibers all the way to your sublingual gland. So that's what we can see here in this diagram. We have our superior salivatory nucleus all the way down for our facial nerve. Here we're going to have our chordae tympani passes through the IT fossa at this point, joining with the lingual nerve. And here we can see at this point it is still pre-ganglionic parasympathetics. It's going to synapse at the submandibular ganglion. And it's going to be then, then you're going to have your post-ganglionic fibers going directly to the submandibular ganglion or ga gland, sorry. 
Or if you're going to the sublingual gland, it's going to hop back onto the lingual nerve to get to the sublingual gland. So at this point, if I cut the lingual nerve, I would be cutting sensory fibers. I would be cutting parasympathetic fibers. What other fibers do I have in chordae tympani? It also has your special taste fibers. So I don't focus on them so much because this is an autonomic lecture, but please remember your special taste fibers are also going to be contained on the lingual nerve. So if I cut the lingual nerve at this point, I'm cutting all of those fibers. If I cut the lingual nerve at this point, right? do you think I would lose my parasympathetics? No, because the chordine tympani has not yet joined. So if I cut the lingual nerve here, I will only lose the sensory aspects of my lingual nerve, but I will not lose my parasympathetics and I will not lose my taste. Okay? So it's important to think about the lingual nerve and where we can have lesions and what kind of symptoms we are going to get. Ooh, sorry. Uh, let me do that again. So that's what we're seeing here. <laughs> here we're looking at the infratemporal fossa. You're going to see some, some of you are going to see it today in lab. Here we have our lingual nerve. We have our chordae tympani joining with the lingual nerve, getting down to my submandibular ganglion. We have our synapse, and then the fibers would then hop back onto the lingual nerve to get to the sublingual gland, or they will go directly to the submandibular gland for salivation. So I think. So I think everyone's sort of comfortable with this one in terms of why the correct answer would be chordae tympani. I think most people just let the time run out. Okay, 95%. It's a little bit better than 90%. So I'm hoping that these ones are, you know, you guys just clicked in wrong. Um, right, we have another question. Okay, again, all right. So as we're going through, we're going to figure out what the correct answer to this one will be. So we're now looking at 
the glossopharyngeal nerve, we've moved on. So, so far we've done oculomotor, we've talked about how we get to the eye, we've done facial, we've talked about how we're going to get to our submandibular and sublingual glands, as well as how we get to our lacrimal gland, our paranasal cavities, nasal cavities, all that. So with the inferior, sorry, with the um, glossopharyngeal nerve, we're starting in the brainstem at the inferior salivatory nucleus. From there, we're going to go through and exit at the jugular foramen. So notice in the lecture, what I've done is I've put nerves, I've put the foramen that they're going to go through, plus remember that we do, you are responsible for knowing the different foramen and exactly what goes through each of those, those foramen and how they exit. From the jugular foramen, your glossopharyngeal nerve is going to give you a tympanic branch, and that tympanic branch is going to go through the middle air and exit, form a tympanic plexus. From the tympanic plexus, you guys are going to talk about that tomorrow, I think, you have your lesser petrosal nerve, which is going to carry the preganglionic parasympathetics, and it's going to enter into the infratemporal fossa via the foramen ovale. So now we know that one of the contents of foramen ovale is our lesser petrosal nerve, and the lesser petrosal nerve contains preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. You're going to have a synapse at the otic ganglion in the infratemporal fossa, and of course your postganglionic fibers are going to go to the parotid gland via a branch of V3, because V3 also goes through the foramen ovale to get into the infratemporal fossa. So that's what we can see here. Inferior salivatory nucleus through to our lesser petrosal nerve here. So this is our tympanic nerve, tympanic plexus, lesser petrosal nerve. Right, so synapsing at the otic ganglia. From there, you're going to have your postganglionic fibers take this branch of your mandibular nerve, which is your auriculotemporal nerve, in order for it to get to its um, destination, which is the parotid gland. So this is going to be involved in salivation. So this is what it would look like when you get into the lab to look at the um, infratemporal fossa. We can see this lesser petrosal nerve here going through your um, foramen ovale. So this is going to be your foramen ovale, your lesser petrosal nerve going through. This is your otic ganglia. Now, when you get to the lab, you're not going to see the otic ganglia. It is extremely tiny, and it's usually removed in dissection. But you will see the auriculotemporal nerve, and now we know that the auriculotemporal nerve not only contains sensory fibers, but it now also contains postganglionic parasympathetic fibers, and it's going to take these fibers all the way to the parotid gland. So going back to our question, So, see, most persons have clicked in. So, a fracture to the foramen ovale would damage the contents of the foramen ovale, which includes the lesser petrosal nerve. And we said the lesser petrosal nerve contains what kind of fibers? Preganglionic parasympathetic fibers. What are the other contents of the foramen ovale? Mandibular nerve, so that's going to be sensory. So, if you damage the foramen ovale, you may have loss of 
your sensory fibers in the mandibular nerve. What else does the mandibular nerve do? There is a motor branch that does your muscles of mastication, so you have problems with chewing as well. Okay, so we still have some persons put postganglionic parasympathetics. The postganglionic parasympathetic fibers, you will find them on the auricular temporal nerve, and those are going to be going to your parotid gland. So that's the end of the lecture as it's intended. These are just summary slides so that you can use for summary. And that's the end of the lecture. I hope we helped to put the parasympathetics together for you guys. And see you guys in lab at the end of today and tomorrow.